Hello and welcome, Arkanaut fans, to the latest tape from the Arkanaut Vault. Yes, this is the Arkanaut Record Series, documenting our journey from relative obscurity to world domination, offering a behind-the-curtain look into what it takes to make a watch brand successful, especially when the entirety of your workforce comprises easily distracted lunatics. Today, I am back in the studio with James Thompson, co-owner of a brand better known as the Black Badger, to discuss one of the rarest and most valuable commodities involved in brand building, time. Now, for those of you who don't know, James still has other business interests in the watchmaking industry and outside of it, and these jobs sometimes drain his temporal resources when it comes to Arcanaut. Now, as of any novel venture, this is a struggle that most new business owners have to undertake, and rather than pretend that any of us are able to commit 100% of our time and focus on the project, I wanted to spend a bit of time discussing the things that get in the way and tear our focus away from the ultimate goal. James, how are you this morning? Welcome to the show. I'm I'm good. I'm good. I'm actually better than I've been in a while. It, uh, app that we were discussing Avengers before because I've been a bit of a Incredible Hulk rage monster behind the scenes oh, yeah? here the last little bit. Yeah. Tell us why. <laughs> um, overextension, I think. When when I get really jazzed about a project, um, I, I kind of have this fantasy and I, I think everybody who's self-employed entrepreneurial, whatever you want to call it, I think kind of shares some of this where you sort of have this fantasy where you just, you sit in this room by yourself and just pure excellence just comes out of every pore on your body, you know, and little Disney cartoon hummingbirds sprinkle fairy dust on you or something. And instead it's been me literally banging my head on the wall and throwing tools around the workshop and then having to damage the things I damage or having to repair the things I damage by throwing tools around and that kind of stuff. No, it's been good. It's been good, but it's been a lot. And I'm kind of in a bit of a flex stage where prior to Arcanaut, when I was doing the rings, uh, purely with Black Badger, it was, I was a shop guy. You know, I mean, my, my education is, is industrial design, product design, but work day-to-day work-wise, I was purely a shop guy. So it was just milling and milling and sanding and hitting things with tools all day. And now that I've for the definitely for the immediate future, kind of hit the pause button on the rings. All these other projects that have been kind of dancing around the periphery, that is a word, a little bit, have have all come in at once and they're all fantastic, exciting, rewarding, very rewarding projects. But holy crap, it just the the instant you start to get inspiration, you can stare at a blank piece of paper for three hours, and I did that the other day. And the instant you go, oh shit, I've got it, I've got it. The little alarm on your phone beeps and says, oh, you got to go pick up the kids from school now. So this is an interesting, so this is an interesting crossover between not just the pressures of other work that most of us, when we're undertaking a solo project or in this case a, a group project but an independent project, have to manage with the complications of family life because you have a wife a lovely wife who's very supportive of your idiocy and genius and two wonderful children's children's i've I've been spending too much time in germany two wonderful children's who are perfect manifestations of both your idiocy and genius by the sounds of things and you have to look after them so you have to be a father first and you have to be the black badger second and then i guess you have to be a, a 
a co-brand owner third how how do you how do you do that how do you reconcile that like do you find yourselves working late after the kids have gone to bed i i absolutely don't reconcile it and that's why i've been really kind of burning myself out the last little bit um i feel like i should have found that balance by now but i absolutely haven't and that's the honest truth on i i absolutely have not um I think I would find it better. Uh, this is going to be some proper soul searching here for nine o'clock in the morning. I think I would do a better job at finding that balance if I was a bit more of a prick. That sounds very difficult to achieve. It's impossible. But I, I, I don't want to be the guy, the husband, the dad, the business owner, whatever, who goes, oh, crap, I have a lot to do, and dumps the kids on my wife who's been running off her ass on her own job all day comes home and I'm like, oh yeah, I got to go bugger off for four hours and work on something. Uh, feed the kids, get them in bed. Love you. See you later. Uh, no, no. So I, I really try and keep a work schedule. But the problem is, is that being uh, not just being creative, but being constructively creative is by no means a linear process. You quite sincerely might stand there staring at the wall for an hour and a half. And I'm not kidding. I did that a couple of days ago. I thought I was going to have a nervous breakdown. I was, I was staring at the wall for like an hour, <laughs> just trying to get all the noise in your head to get all the atoms, you know, like when you pass a magnet over something, I was trying to get all the atoms to kind of line up in the right direction and it just wasn't happening. And, uh, I, I have friends who are not in the same industry, but are also kind of self-employed, really entrepreneurial, really, you know, they're going out and doing stuff. And, and they've always kind of had this, this perception of, and this sounds really dated now, to be honest, but the Instagram hustle, the grind, you know, if you're not every minute that you're not working, Hey, the competition is. So, you know, if you're sitting there having a piece of cake with your kid on your birthday, you know, and you should be sort of discreetly checking your phone under the table for messages or something. I mean, it's just, it's the most destructive, uh, fake way to live. And I, and, and I just refuse to kind of let that into my, into my life because you'll, you'll make yourself crazy and you'll burn out and it, they'll just be, you know, me riding a Buffalo naked for the middle of town, shooting revolvers in the air or something. Very good chance of that happening, by the way. Uh, that's terrifying. <laughs> that's terrifying. I think you've done a good job of creating that separation. I, I know what it's like to struggle with uh, establishing those boundaries. I, I don't have children. I am in a relationship. And occasionally the phone creeps into uh, hours outside of normal working hours. And I, I do defend myself quite a lot because I don't work normal hours. I have clients in the States. And, you know, that obviously throws a spanner in exactly. the works. Yeah, you work yeah. with guys in uh, Dubai or what is that? Is that four or five hours ahead? I'm I'm never sure. Dubai is three hours ahead. Yeah, it's surprisingly but close, it's... isn't it? You know, it's one of those funny things. Like South Africa is like only two hours ahead of the UK or something stupid, and it feels like it should be a million miles away, but it's just straight down. Oh, it is a million miles away. Uh, I do quite a bunch of uh, quite a bit of work with a guy in in the Cape Town area, a jeweler named Mark Gold. And we've sort of talked about me going down there a million times and just kind of, you know, quote unquote working. But mostly I think it's going to be like we're going to drive around in a vintage Ferrari going to all the different wine farms and stuff. Like it sounds great, but good luck selling that to my wife, staying home with the kids kind of thing. Uh, 
Um, but it, it's it's a hellishly long flight. It's like nine hours or ten hours or something, I think. Because you're just you're 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 traveling north and south like the entire uh, diameter of the planet. Uh, yeah, that is true. Actually, from where you are, you, you can't really get much. I suppose northern. Canada or as far north as people live in Canada to the southern tip of South America is probably the longest line you can draw from human habitation to like in one like landmass because you're still on the same landmass which is weird isn't it like <laughs> Gothenburg is actually connected to Johannesburg for example <laughs> weirdly in the in the very early 90s speaking of Dubai in the very early 90s my dad was doing a bunch of development work in in Dubai which at that time looked nothing like it does now you know it was like all the sort of western involvement and expansion and development and all that hadn't hadn't happened yet he was one of the first to really go in there and kind of i guess it's kind of his fault to a certain extent you could say but it was like he was building one of the first american style shopping malls in dubai and now those are you know there's a hundred of them there now but at the time we were living in vancouver in western canada and he went there three or four times. And one time they flew east, and one time they flew west, and one time they went dead north over the pole. And I forget what the numbers were, but it was something like it was within about half an hour or 45 minutes every oh, distance. Wow. It, it, it was exactly sort of, I don't know if equidistant is the right word, but it, it was, you know, if you were to drill a hole through, you would sort of come out at that exact spot. I would say equidistant is is, is good enough, that's for sure, certainly at the same good time. Job. Yeah, nice one. Well done, You're doing Jim. great with words today. You've had periphery in there, which is definitely a word I, I can confirm. So. I'm telling you. Well, you know, I stayed off the booze today, so, so far. So far, although before we started <laughs> recording, you were ogling the wine fridge in the corner of the loom room, so. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. A little bit of a little bit of Hermitage in the morning with your coffee. Mm-hmm. That's one way to get the ball rolling. Talking of, of keeping that ball rolling, um, how do you maintain your? Don't don't tell my don't tell my insurance company <laughs> that I just said that. <laughs> that would explain why you keep chopping your fingers off on the belt sander. Um, how do you keep the ball of inspiration rolling? Because you work on a lot of different projects, and is that key to it that you bounce between things as you feel most able to work on whatever it is that day? No. I think working on everything at once in a giant disorganized, pulling my hair out, freaking out kind of maelstrom, another good word. I, I think even though I don't like working that way, I'm kind of good at working that way. So like I just, just last week, I bought one of these, um, what's the digital paper thing? It's called a Remarkable. And it's like a monochromatic digital sketch taking notes and all this kind of stuff like an iPad, but it's one color and it doesn't have all the extra connectivity stuff that just distracts you. It's just for taking notes and doing basic little shitty sketches. And the day that I got it, I was really responsible. And you you make notebooks on it that you keep all your notes and all your sketches for different projects and different notebooks. So I made about five or six different little notebook front covers on it so that when I'm talking to you and Anders, I've got the Arcanaut notebook and I'm keeping track of things in there. And when I'm working on project XYZ, I've got it in that. And of course, within about a day and a half, I had about 25 pages of notes all in the same book, all completely mixed together, like just completely useless. So I, I actually, I have the attention span of a cat, you know, like just bouncing all over the place and whether that's good or not, 
that's just kind of how I work. So the more I try and organize it, the more I kind of find myself trying to overtly control it, which inevitably strangles it. You know, as I'm always saying, it's like watching a play that's been rehearsed too many times. Um, the more you try and really organize things, it always ends up just kind of fizzling out. So I need to be kind of running around screaming and just banging on things. Yeah, I get that impression. I mean, we've only worked together um, <laughs> professionally for three three or four months. It's a lot of dents in the wall. Um, it's interesting, though, because, okay, when I joined Arcanaut back in September, I looked around. Obviously, I was brought in to be the the uh, military officer, shall we say, to sort of like whip things into some kind of order and process. And it's a very funny role for me to play because bear in mind that like in every role that I've had in the past, while I have had these positions of um, structural authority, I've always been the creative driving force. And so to walk into a room yeah. with you two uh, where there's a creativity for days and, and very little need for me to sort of flex my muscles in the usual creative way and to observe what it is that, you're doing that works and what it is that you're doing that doesn't is, is interesting. And one thing I think I've learned from it already is that everybody, especially when it comes to talented individuals who think a little bit sideways and work outside of every box known to man, um, is that you have to tailor your plan to them. So if somebody looked at the way you work on paper, they would say, okay, this is a problem. This guy is like, he's, he's on this project and this project, and this project, and this project all the way through. And that's stressing him out. And that stress is consuming some time that could be spent working on another project, but it neglects the fact that we're not robots and we are human. And we have to find that sweet spot, like that vein, that groove that enables you to get things done, but to stay like live and active. Because I could just imagine like the worst possible thing that someone in the role I'm in could do would be to basically stick you in a buttoned up shirt in a cubicle in an office and say, right, these are your tasks for the day, complete them in order and then stamp your time card. Uh, yeah, and the following would, would transpire. Bang, bang, thud. <laughs> in, about, in about five minutes, it would just be bang, bang, thud. One other thing um, is that I still have to achieve effectively the same goal, but in a different way. So it's like, okay, I, I listen to the things that give you stress. And when there are things that I can take off your plate that give you stress that it just free up some more time, then that's what I try and do rather than sort of muddling around in your creative process and saying, oh, do it this way or do it that way because that's, that's not what I, I can do to help. And uh, similarly for you. Well, and that's such a different, that's such a difficult balance though because what you need to factor into your, your model that you were talking about before of does this person work well, are they happy? Do they work effectively? Are they stressing out? Are they going crazy? You need to factor in the result in there as well. And I, I need to be going four kinds of crazy to get what, what we at, at Arcanaut think is a cool result. It's almost like I can look at something I've done and tell if it was like, oh yeah, you know, I had all day to sit and faff around with this design and I could sit there listening to the birds and all this as compared to like, holy crap, you know, this needs to be done in 10 minutes and the building's currently on fire and I'm being attacked by a puma at the same time. There, whatever reason, you know, it's like that Jackie Chan uh, drunken master. There needs to be the chaos in it to give that extra little whatever to the final result. 
And I've been doing it that way for so long that it, I'm kind of okay with it. And where that gets to be difficult for you guys is that, you know, I started Black Badger in 2006 and I'm the only person in the company, have only ever been the only person in the company. I have never had a proper product design job at a proper product design agency where I've got different levels of managers and bosses and people that I need to sort of check in with. It's kind of, you, you come up with whatever the goofy idea is and that's my idea. And if someone says, I don't like it, like who fucking asked you? Oh, you're the guy that owns Rolex. Oh, okay. Maybe I should listen. You know, and I, I can't imagine that's especially easy for, for you and Anders to uh, get caught in the crossfire sometimes of maybe somebody who doesn't always share their toys as much as they should be. Well, I don't, I mean, okay, yeah, it's not easy if you just try and manage from a book. And I've met plenty of people who think that you can write down everything of like, you know, all the rules of how to run the perfect company and then execute them just straight off the page. But that's rubbish. All the experience has taught me is that you just have to be flexible and ready for anything effectively. And you look at one situation like this, as you're describing, and you have an artist at work and you know that you can't ruffle the creative process too much without losing the essence of what makes that artist great but you need to channel it into at least a direction not even to like you know i don't decide the conclusion i don't decide the destination i I almost sort of like try and just find some some kind of barrier on either side to sort of say okay we are we're flowing in the right direction it might not be the most direct route but that's not the route we're going to take we're going to take the route that's necessary to get the right result and that might be a bit meandering might be a bit of a maelstrom, as you said, of influences all at once. But ultimately, we get the same thing, but we get it when we need it at the right time, in the right order. And ultimately, it, the hope is that nobody even notices that I'm there. Like, that's that's the goal. Um, just, oh, God, it? I hope people never notice you're there. I know, right? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, no, but even like, we kind of joked about this when you were first coming on board, and we were all sort of figuring out who was going to be doing what. And I think the biggest stress that Anders and I had sort of through last year um, was getting the time and the sort of mental uh, bandwidth, mental bandwidth. Thank you very much. The mental bandwidth to do the crazy creative stuff. Cause at the same time, you know, this was being run from Anders's fucking kitchen table. And he was also packing up the watches and insisting on handwriting a nice letter to every single person who bought one and then packing up the watches and getting on his bike or running over to et cetera, et cetera. So having you on board, I mean, you're sort of joking about it, but really, I mean, it's unbelievably valuable having somebody who can do this and knows how to do this effectively, which is basically lubricate the machine and, and, and essentially open open the doors that need to be opened so that we don't keep running into them. Um, and that sounds unbelievably pretentious and self-centered and I'm skipping around like Philippe Stark or something. But when there's only three or four people in the company, holy crap, is that ever important? Because otherwise, a day will come where we just kind of go, oh, fuck it, I can't be bothered. Uh, too much stress. No, no, screw it. You guys make your own watches. 
you know, I'm going to go live in the jungle and talk to trees or something. Would you like to live in a jungle? I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm kind of a pussy. So I don't know if I'm the person to live in a jungle. There's snakes and spiders and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I wasn't going to say pussy, but like I, I didn't expect. I, you seem to me more of like a, uh, I don't know, a, a debonair city dweller than uh, you know a, a loincloth wearing, vine swinging <laughs> jungle meister. Definitely not a jungle meister because. Uh... Spiders. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I, I grew up in Calgary, um, quite close to the Rocky Mountains and stuff. And I can absolutely remember some of these little vistas that you would come along when I'd be skiing when I was a little kid. And that's kind of one of my mental happy places is, you know, at about 3000 meters elevation, I mean, it's minus 20 and just this windswept, rocky, frozen chunk of hell. It's just gorgeous. <laughs> For me, that that's almost more beautiful than the sort of you know, tropical jungle beach in Belize or whatever. Yeah. That being said, I'd be dead in about 20 minutes up in the mountains. So, Yeah, I'd rather you weren't dead. We really need you. And that's <laughs> one of the interesting things. There's positives and negatives to it. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of negatives to that one, mate. Please don't kill yourself uh, in the wild. Because <laughs> um, one thing for sure is while you're in the wild, you wouldn't be really wearing an Arcanaut because we don't make tool watches. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Anders would uh, swear blind, we never, ever will. But what do you think? Do you think we ever could? I, I don't necessarily see tool watch as, as a four-letter word. Waka, 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 waka. I think by, by definition, our industry is called, you know, calls a tool watch something like a Rolex Deep Sea dweller that's you know two inches thick of solid steel and all this kind of stuff yeah i mean i'm 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 wearing a g-shock right now and i bloody hell that's a tool watch yeah it sure is yeah you know if if i had if i had enough money that i could afford to bang it around and not care if it gets dirty i think a speedmaster is a tool watch i think a daytona is a tool watch or at least they were in their design as soon as you start making all the additions that have you know gold and diamonds and all that i think you get away from it but in their in their DNA, I think they're absolutely tool watches. And is is Arcanaut a tool watch? Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna openly pick a fight with Anders. Jackass, it's a tool watch. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm just being a jerk. Very interesting. Um, it, it, <laughs> it's 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 a bit of a tool watch. I mean, I think if we needed to sort of really identify ourselves, I don't think we do. But if we really, you know, we're like filling out government paperwork and needed to really you know, put an X in a column, I would definitely say we're we're closer to the Bell and Ross side of things than we are a fucking Cartier or, you know, a Van Cleef Arpels. Well, things. okay, that's very fair. That's absolutely fair. It's a steel case. Uh, it's a simple two-hand mechanism. I mean, it looks... Okay, tool watches may be a bit of a broad category that might send people off down the wrong uh, visual rabbit hole. Perhaps we should say it's quite close to a field watch, like a hyper-modern field watch, like a sort of yeah. Hamilton car key. You know what? Yep. When the, when, it's weird that it's been 10 minutes and I haven't mentioned MBNF or David Toon. <sighs> How do I live? Um, when we were doing the, the David Toon DB28 Grand Blue a couple of years ago, um, I had no idea it was a dive watch. That that hadn't been communicated to me in the slightest. It was just a cool outdoorsy, you know, a little robust kind of cool. Great. I still didn't know. And then it I, comes. I out, still didn't know it was a dive watch. Oh, fucking, I don't. I don't think anybody did. But then when it when it was released, it's like, 
Debatoon brings out its first dive watch. And I just remember looking at it going, fuck, the instant you say that all the dive geeks are going to just jump on you like seagulls on a hot dog at the beach and just tear it apart. Just like as soon as you say, oh, it's a pilot watch, you're going to get professional pilot enthusiasts are going to pick it apart ad nauseum. Um, yeah, you know, people can talk and say whatever, who cares? But um, because being a day batoon, not because anything I had bloody well to do with it, but the watch ended up going quite far into the GPHG, um, went through, I think, right to the final in the dive watch category. Bizarre. And I'm like, you know, you look at the other ones and, and they're actual dive watches. They're not especially flashy or showy or complex or even especially very beautiful in that sense. The day batoon was like, buying a McLaren P1 to go pick up the groceries once a week or something like you, you, as soon as you call it a dive watch, I think you kind of shot yourself in the foot because there's such a specific set of criteria that goes. Absolutely. And they are not arbitrary criteria. They have an absolute purpose and that's what some brands bizarrely. And look, I think all of us suffer a little bit from imposter syndrome on occasion when you're like, well, we can't possibly be the experts in this industry that we are regarded as by some people in and around the industry. But when it comes to making brand decisions and product decisions, you find that there are people in the positions of power in these brands that really don't know enough about the subject matter they're approaching. And I've seen it on many occasions when brands release a watch that is marketed as a dive watch. And you look at it and you think, Instantly, you think after years and years in the industry and seeing exactly what the standard sort of dive watch looks like and knowing exactly why that's what the standard dive watch looks like, you think surely there must have been somebody in that drawing room who said, guys, we can't do this because the instant backlash from the community is going to be, uh, that's not a dive watch. And here are the actual reasons why it isn't a dive watch. So if we just slot the word inspired, like dive hyphen inspired watch in there we can get away with it and this can be our offering into that uh, dive watch canon if we want to make such a statement but otherwise let's just steer clear well but you know what that's what mbnf did there and with the hm7 what mbnf did really good and the evo yeah yeah they were like it's not a dive watch it's it's just it's a it's an active lifestyle watch which actually just completely to be honest though step over that entire argument i think it's it's Stepping yeah. over it is fine, but even so, active lifestyle is like who wears an HM7 Aquapod like when you're having activities in your lifestyle? Like basically nobody. It's, it's not the point. Well, that's when you do the Wizard of Oz moment, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. I can almost promise you that there are very few commercial pilots wearing a $100,000 uh, Brightling. I don't think there's a lot of divers that are wearing you know, like you said, an, an aquapod or something. I think most of them are wearing a, a shitty resin rubber G-Shock like I've got on right now because you're going to bang it around. I don't think actual Navy SEALs on deployment are wearing the Jaeger Lacoutre. I never say that right. Uh, oh, what is their, their, their SEAL watch? It's actually a really cool watch. The, um, is it called the Incursion, maybe? If you say so. If Adam Craniotes is listening, he can correct me. Um yeah, and that's kind of the big, the big fluff behind the scenes is you can make a diving watch. You're not probably going to dive with it. You can get one of these 
chronographs with six different wheels on it and sub dials and tell you all these different things about time. But like, how fast do I get my desk going? You know, I, I, what really drives me mad is that while you're absolutely right, that is the fluff behind the curtain. There's no need for it. Like we've, we've slightly better wording in the communication and maybe even a little bit more understanding of what it is the product represents in the boardroom. You could avoid all of these conversations. And yes, you would have like eagle-eyed experts and sharp-minded commenters saying, oh, well, they've just sidestepped that issue by referring to it as a dive-inspired or active lifestyle-inspired watch. It's like, yeah, fine, they sidestepped it, but they did sidestep it rather than just running headlong into it and expecting the public to embrace it. Now, we're not going to say to somebody that an Arcanaut is a field-inspired Danish design um, horological masterpiece. We're just going to say it's an Arcanaut, and that's what it is. It's all it, it's all it needs to be. Exactly. A G-Shock doesn't doesn't need to pretend to be anything else than just a fun, robust watch that you don't have to worry about. You know, it's the it's like wearing a pair of sneakers as compared to wearing a pair of dress shoes. You don't really need to worry so much about them. You can actually step in a puddle and you're not going to freak out. Yeah, true, true, true. Um, you know what Anders is really good at is just sticking his heels in the ground and saying, Arcanaut is going to remain this at, at least no more than three-handed um brand for the foreseeable future because like we were discussing long-term product release strategies the other day and I, I it's my responsibility to raise the question do we want to do a gmt do we want to officially like launch a, a field watch inspired model do we want to try and do a diver in one way or another and he basically uh shouted me out of the pit or the bunker or whatever it is we're calling that location in Copenhagen. Uh, and he was like, no, no, there's no need to do that. He's a mean drunk. You got to watch out for Anders when he's out. <laughs> it was, it was only 1130. So he'd only, he'd only milled through about four. Oh, minutes. I know. Uh, so he was, <laughs> he was, he was getting his, his buzz tied on, but he wasn't, he wasn't hammered. Thank God. No, but I completely understand where he's going with that, but it's, it's such a fluid discussion to have. Like I, I don't, I also don't really foresee Arcanaut being a brand where here's our pilot model, here's our dive model, here's our, and here's a word for it, here's our quote unquote ladies model. You know, all, huh. all yeah, well, yeah, that would be quite popular probably. Oh, I mean, all, all, all these definitions I think are just, are, are just so dumb and destructive and, and limiting. I think if we have a watch that turns out that, you know, like the, the dark matter, if you put the big grandpa hands on that, like, might that might be a cool idea maybe something for versions in the future um that ends up being every bit as legible sort of out of the corner of your eye as my bell and ross br01 mm -hmm. which is three times the size size of a fucking popcorn machine on your mm -hmm. wrist and i like it because i can put it on the counter and read the time from across the room on a wristwatch and that's you know you would almost get that legibility with one of our watches just by making a few little alterations on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe because it's on a rubber strap and it's a steel case and it isn't overly uh, ornamental, well, that might, I don't know if I would dive with it. I don't personally dive because, as we said, I'm a pussy. But, but I think it would work quite well as an active sports watch. Maybe we should have like a little a sort of phone-sized attachment into which you could screw your Arcanaut so you could put it in your phone holder in your car and use it as like your, your dash clock. That would be cool. <laughs> Bell and Ross used to do that. I think when I bought my watch in about 2008 or 2009, you could buy a little stand 
and you would unscrew your BRO1 or BRO3 from the from the straps and actually screw it into a little desk clock mount. I'm not even kidding. I, I never saw it. I never I never saw anybody do it. I'm like, fuck, that's cool. Yeah, it is cool. It is cool. We, maybe we should do that. Um, but I really respect Anders for having that clarity of vision. And you're right that it might change over time. We don't need to look into the future and say, okay, what we're going to do in six, seven, eight, nine years' time. We're, we're laboring towards knowing what we're going to do in three, four, five years' time. And that's that's plenty enough. Because the problem we always have, of course, whenever we come up with a new idea, is that we put it into the release calendar, which gets further and further into the future. And we get impatient. We want to release it now. We want to skip the 15 model ideas that we have before we get to the really cool one that we're building up to. Because... We forget because every new model to us, every unreleased model is old to us. We're like, oh, what's the new thing? What's the new thing? But like, obviously, we want the followers of Arcanauts to go through the same excitement that we did as we built up towards these different models. As we And that's a really big part of this is we want Arcanaut, and especially the people that are kind of along on this bizarre little uh, arcanaut journey, is it's still happening. We haven't designed the next five watches and they're all just sitting on shelves here waiting to go out the door when we feel the time is right. We might decide tomorrow to do something completely different. It's totally reactive. And I think that's one of the real benefits of the fact that we are a small, very independent and completely idiotic company is that we really can turn on a dime. Yeah. So we might decide tomorrow that some amazing lightning strikes idea comes along and as we're working on it go god that looks that really has a cool sort of pilot watch vibe to yeah. it yeah well okay cool but are we going to sit down and design a pilot watch no no i don't think no. so because you know that's just not us and i think that's okay so i actually think that it's quite amusing if it comes about if it comes about organically i think it's quite funny you know like if you could have like sort of almost a, a parody of like a pilot's watch or a, a, a GMT or a dive watch. Then they may not need to come out as a deliberate satirical collection. They could come out as, and when we sort of stumble into them for whatever reason. But I think it's quite funny. And I'll be like, this is typical. Arcanaut. The desk diver, the sofa test pilot, the, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The sunbed diver, you know, all these kinds of sort of, it's really good for sitting beside the pool. Oh, okay. Nice. Well, what you said about being reactive and dynamic is important, though, to the company. Of course, we're trying to walk two lines at once now because we are trying to establish a longer-term plan and we're trying to get in place models to come out rather than just being like, oh, hey, let's do this. It's Wednesday. Let's do this special edition Wednesday model. Like, Obviously, that's not what we want, but the, the flexibility we have is to change that plan at a moment's notice. And I've always said in my life, like my one mantra is always know exactly where you're going and be prepared to die and be prepared to change direction at the drop of the hat. And that's what we need to do. And that's what we are doing right now. So, I mean, the other day when you uh, sprung upon Anders and I in the toilet in Stockholm with your latest creation. Uh, oh yeah, there was that. Yeah, there was, <laughs> people, people still talk about it. <laughs> hey guys, come here for a sec. Yeah. I can't believe I fell for that. Too, too, it could have gone so badly yeah. wrong. Like twice. Twice. I just kept following this his suit man into the gents like when he's like oh, i got something to show you buddy oh yeah this is happening again <laughs> <laughs> i blame the whiskey um but no but that's that's kind of one of the aspects that i get really 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 excited about is just these little eureka moments and then being able to physically bring it and show it to you guys and say what do you think about this 
Um, I mean, that's how the that's how the Fordite came about. That's how the dark matter came about. That's how you know a lot and a lot of the other stuff that's still kind of in the uh, in the in the Arcanaut vault here is nothing really happened intentionally, and I think that really is pretty important because some of these other I mean, there's quite a large watch brand that I'm working with right now that's just about got me jumping out the fucking window um, because there's a bunch of people in the company. Crazy, right? And one person says, well, we really like these aspects of this design. Let's, let's run with this. And then suddenly the CEO of the other company that actually owns controlling interest in that company goes, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I don't like that. Go with the first one. And, and you're sort of bouncing around back and forth. And then the idea starts to look a bit like a salad bar where you take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and you sprinkle a bit of this and you forgot that you still have half of a donut on the plate and it just ends up looking confused and the the message gets blurred out quite a bit. I lost where I was going at that there. I, I had a point. I'll, uh, I'll get back to you tomorrow with my... my send, send it through to my secretary on a postcard when you figure out what it is. I'll... I'll pass it along to Ivan. Yeah. <laughs> why, is, why is my secretary always like a, you know, strapping Eastern European farmhand rather than like a beautiful slip of a thing, you know? Wow. Why is it always Ivan? Strapping Eastern European farmhand. <laughs> let my secret desires slip there. <laughs> We're all learning things today. That's excellent. Um, he can till the earth. <laughs> He's a powerful boy. But no, I mean, I mean... You're, just stop. You've worked with a lot of the, the very established brands and the brands that have sort of international presence and aren't just a couple of guys sitting with a bottle of vodka underneath a single, you know, light bulb in the middle of the kitchen kind of thing. How, and, and that's kind of all I've done really. How, how different are we and is our process from some of these other brands that you've been a part of? Oh, it's massively different. I mean, it's, it's 180 almost like um, you were... Uh... Process is a word that I wouldn't even apply at the moment um, to to Arcanaut, and it's a word that I would apply in in not the most complimentary terms to many big brands. Many big brands get bogged down with process and forget to do the actual job. You can tell all companies go through this as they scale up. You can tell the moment when a company starts to lose its soul and prioritize paperwork and... Arcanaut is as far from that as is possible. And we need to keep it as far away from that as possible. I've been in so many brands, institutions, even media outlets where the process becomes what we spend most of our time taking care of. You know, you fill in forms, you're documenting all of your actions, you're um, involving everybody in everything. God, it, be it becomes a, oh, what's the movie? Uh, we're having some problems with your TPS reports there. Oh, office space. Did you did you get the memo? Oh, God, I love yeah, that. me too. Wonderful. Yeah, um, it's Lumberg. It's Lumberg. Working with Lumberg. It's, it's, it's Bill. Space. Yeah. So that's that is exactly Great. what it gets like. And you notice this. Um, so obviously, you can notice that from being on the inside of it and having to deal with that. And I struggle with that a great deal when I'm having unnecessary red tape wrapped around my hands because I'm like well I want to I want to actually do the thing and 
I'm a difficult person to have within that process rather than overseeing it because mm-hmm. I can do the thing normally if it's writing or if it's creating or if it's designing, I can do the thing. So I want to get on and do it. I don't want to write down why I'm doing it or how I'm doing it or for whose benefit I'm doing it. I'm like, I'll do it. And then you'll see that. I almost get the impression that you would sort of have the same kind of conflicts. You know, it's like when you see somebody interview like a wildlife photographer and they're like, I had to sit there and watch the three wolves tear apart the baby buffalo kind of thing, even though you wanted to help it, you know, from a human side, but that's nature and being an impartial observer. Your role isn't to go chase the buck, chase the, the predators away or whatever, because they have a right to eat, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I'm, I'm sort of wondering how much that pops up with your role in Arcanaut is, is it quite difficult to keep to the type of things that you were saying before and not getting, getting bogged down in the design fist fight that uh, Anderson and I are sort of going through all the time for, for want of a much better term. It's, it's easier to stay out of the design fist fight than you might think for me at this point, at least because there's so many other things to be focused on. So mm-hmm. I, whenever I've joined companies in flux before it happened when I joined Fratello, there was a huge amount of potential and there was energy being bled all over the place, like wasted energy, poor focus, a lack of structure. And I was like, okay, well, this is this job to straighten this out is at least a year, 18 months of like figuring out how we can make something that resembles a process without it being stifling to the creativity. And that yeah. that worked. It took some time. And even since then, it's been refined again and again and again, and that will continue to be refined. Problem is you don't want to refine it to death to the point where it does become overbearing. And that's the issue that so many growing, especially rapidly growing companies do suffer with because they start listening too much to the outside world and thinking, oh, we need to do it this way. Oh, we need to do it that way. Oh, we need to put in these steps and checks and measures. It's like, okay, well, that's just going to crush everything. See, and that's really hard because especially if a big part of the brand identity like we have with Arcanaut is we're, we're very much involved with the community. Yeah. And it's, that's, that's the clients, that's the people that have put down their credit card and are helping, you know, feed my family and stuff, mm-hmm. but also just the enthusiasts and the people that are just kind of watching from the sidelines a little bit. That sounds kind of rude, but, you know, people that are watching and involved because we're sort of constantly getting these, oh, you know what would be cool if you guys did this? And, oh, if you only did this, it would be so perfect. Oh, you should have done this. Yeah. And it's like, a, it's like one of those white noise machines that you got where you're just, you're constantly getting... Oh, but you should have uh, put in the back of your head. And some of them are good ideas. In fact, to be honest, some of them are spectacular ideas. But here's the problem. If they're not our ideas, are we, are, are we kind of watering down the wine? Because it's not just a generic community design piece. It's an Arcanaut. So, for instance, at what time, at what time does a Porsche start to look like a Mercedes? At what time does a Ferrari start to look too much like an Audi? You know, what's that design language tipping point? You raise a good point, and there's a few strands to it. Um, you're talking about mostly the, the struggle with interacting with and respecting the community without letting the community influence the direction of the brand, but simultaneously not ignoring a community's ability to do just that. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
it is a tough balance to walk. And this is the kind of thing that a lot of growing companies, I think, struggle with because it doesn't fit neatly into any process. Because really, processes should exist as a reference point, not as something to be emulated or copy and pasted onto every different undertaking in the world. So we have like an idea of what something should Man, that was well said. <laughs> Do you have that written down in front no, of you? No, I, I don't make notes. I really should. Fuck, man. Jesus Christ. Good, buddy. We have to listen to the community. Okay, we have to listen to them, but we also have to have like a, a wall between uh, their ideas and their their desire to lead the company in a direction and where we want to take it. Because this is this is your company, this is yours and Anders' company, and you are the brand and you have a vision. Now that doesn't mean that you're deaf to the world and influence around you. But what the worst thing so many hyper reactive brands do is they think that every commenter's opinion is equal. It's a problem in yeah. the world in general, not to, to you know put too broad a point on it, but people think sometimes that everybody's opinion is valid and everybody's opinion is not valid because some opinions are based on fact and reason and logic and experience and others are based on whims and personal emotions and sometimes inaccuracies, sometimes the opposite of fact. They're just based on nonsense. So we have to lead. That's the key. So brands have to lead. Yes. Now, when a brand turns over its design to the community, although that can be an activating uh, endeavor, it does also risk sacrificing what it is the brand is trying to say. The brand knows its message. The brand must communicate it. The brand must be strong in that regard. And so when you hear something from the community, you listen, you digest, and then you put it through the brand filter and you see what comes out on the other side. We actually had a fantastic quote Anderson and I from uh, somebody who we were talking about something with. We'll leave it at that. And it was it was actually along those lines of exactly what you were just speaking about about when the community, of course, is is absolutely paramount and critical for a brand like ours. But it needs to be part of the process, sure. But it doesn't get more of a vote. You don't get to tell us how to design the next watch because you bought the last watch. And that probably sounds really rude, but it's an Arcanaut. And an Arcanaut needs to be an Arcanaut. So what this guy said, we were talking about, oh, it was some really broad, vague investors discussion or something. And he said, as soon as you bring in enthusiasts, as soon as the enthusiasts get too good of a seat at the table, he said, your job becomes their hobby. So unless they're putting in, you know, two or three or four million dollars into your company, at which point they're an investor and maybe an investor has more of a role. As soon as the enthusiasts start really putting in ideas and kind of getting pissy if you don't listen to them, your job has become their hobby. And it's no different from all these Gordon Ramsay kitchen nightmare type shows where somebody, some guy buys a, a sports bar and then three of his buddies come in and invest a little bit to help him out. And then as soon as those guys have put a bit of money in, they're all now going behind the bar and getting a bottle of whiskey for themselves and bringing a date there and eating for free, you know, five days a week and all this kind of stuff. So it's a really delicate balance. It's almost like doing business with family. You, you really need to be careful that you're not giving it too much emphasis. But the reality though is like what, again, what I was listening to your, the previous podcast when you were speaking with Anders, listening to it yesterday, saying how, um, this was more about retail, but about having some pieces in retail 
is you're gathering what he would call boots on the ground intelligence. And I think that's absolutely accurate. That somebody's probably not going to email me and list off five or six things that they didn't like about the watch. Well, if they did, they'd be kind of a dick. But somebody who's talking to a sales associate, if, if we had something in a shop somewhere, would say, you know, oh, yeah, I like it, but no, oh, shit, it's just it's too expensive. And, oh, it's a little dumb looking, and I don't like this, and this part smells bad or something. Oh, well. So actually getting that, yeah, it smells terrible. Getting that kind of ground-level intelligence, I think, needs to come from actual people and not just from marketing committees and all that kind of stuff. But there's so many nuances and there's so many different little ways you could take this discussion that it could be, we, we could do two or three hours on just this. Yeah, I mean, chewing over the, the benefits of, of retail um, versus what it does to your stockholding and your uh, liquid asset capital, as it were, is um, a long discussion. But ultimately, being represented on high streets or in boutiques is beneficial because it instills the idea of luxury in the mind of the consumer via almost osmosis. I always say, you know, you're in an environment that sure. is, you're surrounded by beautiful brands and you have to be in the right environment. And the only retailers we're considering working with um, are very high end and they are generally independent focused and they have uh, design language, which of course is nothing like Arcanaut because nothing is, but it is similarly creative <laughs> and off base. And they have the expertise to explain the product, which is important. And even if somebody goes into a retailer looking to buy a Chapek Antarctique and they are there and they, they have no intention. That's a nice watch. That's a cool it's watch. It's one of the greatest. And like they are there and they're going to buy it and they're, they're just looking elsewhere. And they go, oh, what's this? The guys that understand what it is that makes the Antarctic special also understand what makes the Arc 2 special. So um, I'm keen to expand our retailer presence and it isn't sales focused. It is mm -hmm. really just, you know, message focused. And I think we'll see that in the next 12 months. We'll see uh, two or three retailers join the Arcanaut family, but, but probably no more in the first year. No, I mean, we don't want to be blasting out there. You don't want to have it like, uh... well, and, and the, the downside or say the flip side of that coin is that if you do have a very strong retail presence and we're just pumping out watches that are in stores all over the place, like what I absolutely do not want to see is, you know, late January, February, walking through town and seeing, you know, all Arcanaut 40% off, you know, I mean, we're stacking them deep and selling them cheap. I mean, good fucking God, that's just soul crushing. That will never happen, ever. I guarantee it. Well, firstly, they don't no. have a 40% margin. And secondly... Um, <laughs> I wish they did. <laughs> well, yeah, so do I. One day, maybe, if the volume goes up. But then again, you know, that's one of the things that we're worried against, isn't it? Because we, we don't want to be producing watches um, in their thousands. We, we want to get to a sustainable level where we're able to satisfy the community just about, keep them interested, keep them engaged with what we're doing, and make something special for them, something special enough for us to all have Lamborghinis and, you know, skydive to work and whatnot. But, you know, <laughs> not, not so special sure. that we're, we're going to space on the weekends. You know, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's important. No, and I mean, I think, I think at this point, I can fairly comfortably say if I was going to sell out, I would have done it a long time ago, and I would have done it hard. I would have sold out like a motherfucker. But... You know, for whatever reason, I didn't. And I probably would have made a lot more money if I did. But I would 
have sold out and be doing something completely different. By You're now. too Canadian. I get the feeling that selling out is not really in Canadian culture. Not so much, eh? Not so much, eh? Oh, sure. <laughs> oh, sure. She's just a beauty, eh? Oh, geez. <laughs> well, that's how you could describe your career from afar, because it really has rounded into something quite remarkable. And I'm glad to be a part of the next step of it. Oh, it's nice. It's an absolute pleasure having you guys on board. Oh, it's great, right? Well, it, 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 it's taking us in directions. You know, the, the, you say the, the sum of the individuals is more than their individual, if I totally cocked that up in my head. Um, because we've all got different skill sets and even different sort of interests of what we want to do with the brand. And I think if we all had the exact same vision, it would be a really boring, pedestrian, predictable kind of brand. But the fact that it is like a couple of drunken convicts driving around in a food truck, you know, running over things and shooting out the window, that's that's interesting. And in an industry that can sometimes be a little bogged down by its own history and its own enchanté-ness, I think it needs, the industry needs more shitheads. I mean, that's the Arcanaut T-shirt right there. We're designated designated shitheads. Okay, well, and you're welcome. That's a nice sign, but I do I do love it. I'm wondering whether our brand colors are going to become like orange and black, and we're just going to start wearing jumpsuits to events or something just to hammer home the point. Nice with the renegades of the industry, but um, nice. Now you know it's interesting because we, we've lived through, and this is the last point that we'll make on this podcast before we wrap it up. But we've lived through, um, oh, I'd say a decade at least now of what I call heritage mining my little term for it, where brands go... I like uh, that. No, thanks, yeah. But many other publications have copied me ever since I came up with it, but, you know, you're welcome to it, my, my dear friends in the Jack media. Asses. No, 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 it's great. I mean, it, there's a few little terms that I've been responsible for now, but it's only natural it's going to happen after years of hammering the keys. But brands have been looking back into their past <laughs> and pulling out classic <laughs> models for what seems like forever. Now, I'm okay with this because there are some brilliant classic designs that really deserve to be given the modern manufacturing treatment. And we've seen some beautiful pieces brought back to life, like some excellent old Breitling, like the 765, the AVI 765, for example, like something like that brought back to life in its living its best life, as people say these days, uh, in 2020. I think Anderson and I actually looked at those when we were in Geneva last stunning. Week, the, uh, the Breitling one, because they were giving out free breakfast. Oh. Uh, so we, we popped in, looked at some of the watches, and actually they were... They were dead cool. That's not a brand that I usually get very excited about. Um, oh, well, George Kern has done wonderful things since he went there. He really has. But it, he really has. Look, these were really cool. They were really cool. And their uh, creative director, Sylvain Berneron, is a friend of the Real Time Show and uh, a, a yeah, great guy. I've, I've chatted with him a little he bit. He has got some cool stuff coming out in the near future, but we better not say too much about that because that's all confidential and hush hush, but wonderful. So keep your eyes turned to Berneron as well. That's at B E R N E R O N. I actually sent him, Sylvain, a WhatsApp message about a month ago, mistaking him for another person of the same name and told him a whole bunch of confidential stuff. Nice, <laughs> nice, nice. I'm sure he's, uh, he's safe as houses, though, so he'll, he'll keep his mouth shut, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. But one of the complaints about this era that we're going through is that there is no new design, that people don't push the boat out. People forget that at once, at once upon a time, the Nautilus and the Royal Oak were new, and they were... They rocked the boat big time. And the Arcanaut uh, Arc 2 and previously the Arc 1 are new designs. And that's what's so weird. Yeah. People look at it and they go, oh, what is this? It's not part of the established order. You know who asked for this? Well, everybody asked for it. Nope. Well, I was going to say nobody asked for it and you're welcome. <laughs> well, you can, well, you can say that if you want, but everybody, everybody, nobody asked for that, but everybody asked for something of that nature. 
they say, oh, yeah. isn't it a common complaint that we go, nobody does anything new in watchmaking anymore? And when, as soon as somebody does, people are like, holy shit, what is that? What is that spaceship that's just crash landed into the window of my local retailer? It's such a weird industry because, like you said, everybody wants something new. And as soon as you come up with something new, they go, well, well, but that that doesn't look like a Royal Oak and it doesn't look like a Nautilus and it doesn't look like a GMT. So, and, you know, a little curl of smoke comes off the top of their head and they burst into flames. It's it, We used to have this expression we called negative legacy inheritance um, through a different project I was working on years wow. ago. And basically it was, yeah, it was, it was actually it became part of my, my grad project. This was um, designing submarines. Hey, hey. And negative legacy inheritance was basically, even if something is bad, even if something you can fix really easily, the pushback that you get from the people that have been dealing with the bad so long is that it's kind of like, well, uh, you get used to it. You know, like in our case, this was on a, a Navy submarine. Why is everything made of plate metal and folded sharp corners? Doesn't that hurt when you bonk your head? Well, yeah, but after a couple times, you know, you kind of you know, stop caring. I'm like, can we just fix it and make something else? Ah, it's just kind of a waste of time. Just we'll work around it. My God almighty, guys. <laughs> so there you go. There's my expression that's going to start getting pirated. Negative legacy inheritance. You're I love it. I love it. And that's what we're trying to upend. And that's what we're trying to avoid, right? Just a new legacy, a completely new legacy. Maybe that should be one of our, that should go on a t-shirt. As well as designated shitheads uh, building, <laughs> totally different vibe. Okay, right, let's wrap it up. Um, you need to go do some work. Uh, don't don't drink the wine before you hit the sander. Okay. Oh, we'll see. Well, I'm not making any promises. Oh, all right, Jesus. Okay. Good luck. Fingers <laughs> crossed. I can put some red wine on my coffee and pretend it's a Guinness. Mm-mm-mm. So curious. I'm going to try that. All right, everybody, go grab yourselves a. Um, a red Guinness coffee and we'll speak to you soon. Take it easy. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.